0: All right, collective listeners. On this episode of the podcast, we have my very good friend, Johnny Fabrizius. I thought this was a fantastic guest to have on after I recorded the podcast with Dan Worth because we both met at the University of Tennessee. Johnny's been influential in my development as a coach. I mean, He's been a fantastic peer for me. And on this episode, we cover a lot of topics, everything from sports science and technology, sports psychology, coaching, communication, really anything that you can think of under the umbrella of strength and conditioning. So I hope you all enjoy this podcast and thank you for listening. What's going on, collective listeners? On today's episode of Samson Strength Coach Collective, we have a very good friend of mine, uh, Johnny Fabrizius. He is currently the director of performance for the Real Monarchs out in Salt Lake City, Utah. Johnny, pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's good to talk and just have some fun with you.
0: Very good to catch up as well. Even though we call each other about every week, so yeah, yeah. Um, but this this time this uh, call is public for everybody. Exactly. So. There you go. Well, why don't you start off, give us a little introduction of yourself, how you got into sports, and then how that transitioned into strength and conditioning.
1: Yeah, so just off the bat, I went to college playing football in South Dakota, and during my time there, I had torn my ACL twice, and throughout that entire process, I really was trying to figure out – how I could reduce this for other people, because I didn't want anybody else to go through exactly what I went through. And so I started scavengering around a little bit about what I could do, um, the things that I can get involved in. And I kind of found strength conditioning and sports psychology. And so that kind of blossomed my idea and approach about what I wanted to do for my career. And at that time, um, my strength coach um, that I was working with, he, he was basically a father figure to, to me, I uh, had a lot of different things going on uh, when I was playing football. And I ultimately ended up living with him for probably three months. And during that three-month spell, uh, he really showed me exactly what a coach could do um, and ha- what impact uh, that, uh, that a coach could have on your life. And I will never... Uh, forget what he did for me and that relation kind of relationship kind of sparked what I wanted to do for the rest of my career and I wanted to to pay him back as much as I could and the one thing that he said to me was I just want you to do the same thing that I've done for you to others and I thought what a great avenue uh, to kind of start approaching and in and strength conditioning and it, initially it was because I I wanted to go into sports psychology but I didn't think I was going to have as much hand-on experience uh, as coaching. And his relationship showed me that. And so I'll be forever thankful for him in that.
0: Well, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that's, you know, people do talk a lot about how a coach isn't just a coach. You know, they're there to be a mentor for an athlete as well. But, I mean, for him to allow you to be in his house for three months, I'm sure, like you mentioned, it significantly affected uh, your path and, and your decision to end up being a strength coach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And from there, he he pushed me even further. So when I was looking um, at continuing education, I really wanted to kind of stay close to home. Uh, But he pushed me outside of my comfort zone when I was looking at schools and what I wanted to do. And University of Tennessee was one of the places that I had looked at to do my graduate studies. And he when i asked him which school i should choose he said the university of tennessee and for me the relationship that we had and the trust that we had i just felt like that was probably going to be the right place and so i ended up going down there and luckily enough while i was there had a couple of different spells <clears throat> working in the private sector working in the military and gave me a lot of experience i was also lucky enough to spark up a conversation with uh, director dan worth uh, we were at a nsca conference in charlotte and i saw him wearing a big old tennessee shirt on and i approached him and we just started talking about lord of the rings and harry potter and and we just connected off and, and it went from there and luckily enough he started uh added, added me on full time to the staff um, and kind of went off and running from there so i was at university of tennessee for five, six years or so started out as a coaching assistant, um, working with basically every Olympic sport. And then I was also assisting football at the time, which is how you and I met. And then had a grand old fun time with that Uh, got done with uh, kind of two years of graduate study and accepted a full time position um, with with soccer and women's golf uh, at the start. And from there, man, the relationships that I built, especially with the soccer coach at the University of Tennessee at the time, Brian Penske, he really pushed me to be the best person that I could be, the best coach that I could be. And he has thus pushed me into the role that I am into today, um, going into working with RSL, Real Salt Lake and the MLS. very nervous to make that jump into the professional side but he knew that i deserved it and he felt like i would do an awesome job at it and for that i'm forever thankful as well so that just leads us to where we are today um working with RSL.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I mean, our, our time at Tennessee was fantastic. Dan Worth was on the podcast last week. Uh, so to everybody should be familiar with him. Um, but Johnny and I really enjoyed our time working with him. And I thought he was a great mentor to us. So I mean, and it sounds like through this whole journey, mentors have been really important to you. Um, and like you mentioned, your strength coach said he wants you to pass that along for uh, future athletes, future other strength coaches, potentially you do work with. What are some ways that you try to make sure that you live up to that message or try to help other straight coaches or athletes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's really just being able to touch people every single day. So coming in to what you are doing, I know we joke about it a lot of the time. We we have so much that is going on. We have so many different things pulling us in different directions, so many feelings about certain circumstances and things of that nature. But just coming in and being a steady rock and a constant presence for people. I think is the first thing that you can do on on that list. And for me, I found that the relationships that you build with the coaches that you work with, with the players that you work with other, you know, superiors or supervisors or anything of that, that nature, those relationships are the most important thing. So just cultivating an environment where you're a steady presence, you have the same attitude every day with them. Yes. You can joke around and, and have times where you're vulnerable and, and, you know, things may be, might not be going your, your way, but ultimately you're just a steady rock for them and you allow them to kind of grow into who that they, who they should be, uh, has, has really come to the forefront for me. So I never want to press anything onto other people. I never want to tell people you have to do something X. If you're not doing it X, then we're not going to get along. I think, having the robustness to have variability within what you're doing, the conversations that you're having, is a must, especially when you're looking at developing people, because we're all from different areas, all from different backgrounds, and you need to start to understand that the way that you're grown up, the way that your environment presents itself is going to dictate how you respond to different situations and circumstances. and. That was something that I started learning pretty early on, especially with my circumstances and with uh, my my original strength coach uh, back in college. And that was something that we talked about all the time is everybody is so different and being able to realize that and identify the things that make people different is really, really important.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you said that I really resonate with is being that steady presence, right? And it was funny as I started to track our lifts, and I would notice on days that we had bad lifts, uh, it was usually the times where I started off in a bad mood. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's you really are the energy uh, controller for the room, right? So it's interesting to hear you say that. And that's something that I've recently discovered. Right. Um, and to understand that being a presence is sometimes, you know, you never know what people are going through at home either. Right. And yeah. so for them outside of the sport coach, you're probably the person they're going to see the most on a daily basis. So being steady for them is really just so important. That's, that's awesome. And, and, It sounds like you know just i may have a little bit of a cheat code because we went through the same master's program right but you discussing uh variability and being able to work with the athlete you know it sounds very similar to these sports psychology principles that we uh are accustomed to so how do you feel like your sports psych degree has helped you as a strength coach oh yeah i mean it's made a massive
1: difference especially just in being able to identify people have emotional intelligence and and really begin to understand that everybody is going through different things and everybody's going to respond to, to things differently. And this is, this is, I wish more coaches would be open to this idea. I oftentimes find people super rigid with, with their ideas and their principles of what they want to be as a coach. And I have conversations all the time talking about, okay, we have a problem with athlete A. What are we doing to understand this athlete? What are we doing to help this athlete? What are we doing to really get a full scope and full blend of exactly what this athlete is going through? And a coach is like, well, well, I've done this this way for 15 years. It's it's worked the majority of the time. I just don't understand why it's not working now. And so this, this background and this education that we received was – phenomenal in understanding that while things may work for a lot of people, things typically end up branching off somewhere along the spectrum. And this this has driven me into even a different scope into my training practices as well, because I start to think about the mind and, and how the mind is interpreting its environment and how people are responding to its environment. And I, I began looking at neurotransmitter research and, and trying to identify why people have you know, we're doing the exact same program with 25 athletes. I see 12 athletes do a fantastic job with it. I see six athletes do nothing. There's not a lot of gains. And then I see, you know, another six athletes do really, really poor. And I start asking myself questions about why this is. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it in my own training, doing well in one area, not in another. And it just brings you back to, the athlete as a person rather than just an athlete. And that's something that I think a lot of people misunderstand how important it is. We're getting to the point nowadays where it is becoming a big topic and it is center of attention, but I don't know if people really truly understand the entire scope of things and how to actually manipulate your actions to help influence an athlete in the right direction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, that, you know, what you just spoke to about being able to meet the athlete with where they're at and, you know, bend and not break with your principles, right? Those are very valuable things, especially with understanding each athlete as an individual person. How do you tow that line, though? You know, how, how do you keep your main principles while still trying to meet the athlete with where they're at? Yeah, fantastic question. With this
1: is, it's getting to know the athlete. That's first and foremost, the the number one thing is. Being able to know how far you can push um, and how far you can bend and how far you can't. And then understanding where you are with your sport coach as well is really, really influential because you might have a sport coach who's all in on what you have to offer and the things that you're talking about. Or you may have a sport coach who is really set in their ways as well. And you have to find a way to be an extension of them. And so it's going to depend on the situation and the people that you're around, but once you get to that point of being able to kind of make an understanding of where you're at, who you're working with, I think it's having a traditional, you know, basic standpoint of, OK, what is my values? What are my principles and and where where am I going to get the meat and potatoes? Where am I going to get, you know, 80 percent of the meal? Where is the biggest bang for my buck? And then. What can I change left or right of that stick to facilitate more improvement for my athlete? So typically I say all the time, 75% of my training is going to be completely the same for most people. It's going to differ when you start to get into an upper echelon of elite athletes. People have a really, really high training age. Before that point, though, most people are going to need basically the same thing. And from that point, that's where you can start to differ, um, and manipulate training strategies to make the athlete better, whether that's from a psychological perspective, whether that's from a pure loading schematic perspective, most of the time it's going to be that meat and potatoes. What can you do to help facilitate the best change? And for most people, that's probably going to be ground-based movements, three-dimensional movements, um, and really hounding those things out, and then we can branch off from there.
0: No, absolutely. And uh, and I take a similar approach, certainly, with our athletes here at App State because, you know, there are main things that we're always going to do. We'll always front squat you know, we'll always do our RDLs. We'll get these work this work in. But, you know, there's specific athletes I can think of that if they don't want to do uh, landmine single leg RDL, they hate it, you know, then potentially we can do a different version of it. And it's amazing to see how much of a difference that really makes, you Yeah. Know, because a lot of times within the sport world, and especially I feel like coming from the high school to the collegiate level, there's a lot of things where coaches will say, this is my way, this is exactly how we're going to do it. Like, Like you mentioned earlier, like if you're going to have to do it this exact way, and if you don't do it, then, you know, I'm not going to bend to what you want. Uh, and it's just incredible. You use athletes just this small little bit of autonomy. It's just one little choice and all of a sudden they light up and everything's completely different. You know, we like to do it with our, uh, upper body pump days you know if somebody comes in for extra work i'm like you get to choose your bicep choose your tricep uh and then you wouldn't believe like the guys all of a sudden completely bought into it and and now they're super excited but yeah
1: that's what's so fantastic and that brings you back to the sports psychology aspect of it and it's how do you get people to trust you how do you get people to understand your vision and what you're trying to do and it comes down to those the self-related theory like or um can't think of the theory. self-determination, yeah, self-determination yep. theory. Yeah. and the autonomy, the, the relatedness, and then like your expertise on it. So can you show somebody that, you know, what you're talking about? Can you relate to somebody on some personal level? And then can you give them the, the decision to do something? And if you can do those things more times than not, it might not be the first time, but at some point you're going to gain their trust and they're going to do what you're asking them to do.
0: Absolutely. You know, I've, I've had that process take up to two years with certain athletes. You know, uh, it's, it's slowly chipping away at it every day. But like you said, the biggest understanding of gaining their trust and they know that you truly have their best interests at heart, um, I think it ends up being a really beneficial relationship. And, you know, I, I like to mess with them every once in a while. Sometimes when they do complain about what we're doing, I say, oh, that's my bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I want to see you get better. Like, that's my fault. You know, and then usually they uh, respond well. So, But that's what well, you sorry go ahead
1: yeah but that's that's the thing with everybody's always asking oh how can we how can we do this can we get it done quickly and the most efficient amount of time and it's like "Ah, i wish i could say yes like oh we're going to get everything dialed in right away but there's a massive miscommunication and misconception on how long relationships take to build and it's a long time for some people and when you talk about you know understanding people and understanding what they're going through and the, and their environment that they were placed in. Some people just take a really long time to trust people. And a lot of people don't understand that they want it now, 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 like, Oh, why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? Why are we having so much trouble? Well, like there's so much going on. We got, we got to take a step back and, and understand that the relationship is going to take time.
0: And on the flip side of that, too, you know, from a strength coach standpoint, there's been times where those relationships haven't come quickly. And I've doubted my ability to coach, yeah. you know, when at the, I mean, at the yeah. same time, like this person has, is dealing with a lot going on at home or, you know, uh, significant others. They're struggling in that relationship. It's just incredible the amount of factors that truly go into it. Yeah. And I mean, I have even a small anecdote uh on this when i first started working at university of tennessee johnny was there and he was bulldogging me in the <laughs> office and he, he would just stare me down i was like what is this guy's problem and then it took a couple months but then eventually we developed a great relationship yeah. so it can work for everybody yeah
1: and that, that that does bring up another point i i typically do have a really good idea of reading people for whatever uh, reason i was like yeah this guy sucks and it was the one, I mean, probably not the only time I was wrong, but I was wrong on that end, and I'm sure happy that I was.
0: Well, I appreciate you admitting it, so yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, w- one thing that was really interesting to me, too, in that just that previous conversation, you did talk about uh, neurotransmitter typing. Could you kind of just, I, I know previous podcast listeners have been exposed to this, but I just want to give it a brief overview and then what you do uh, with that with your athletes.
1: Yeah, so essentially with neurotransmitter Profiling: What you're doing is identifying personality characteristics of individuals um, and through these personality characteristics, you are able to identify particular neurotransmitter dominances and through these neurotransmitter dominances, you are then able to be able to predict a, a, an athlete's physical outcome or psychological outcome to particular training environments, um, training situations. So for me, what I've done um, essentially is I've, I've came together with a a list of questions that helps me identify these physical um, and psychological characteristics of an individual, a player will take this test for me. Uh, It'll sort through exactly based off of their answers, what neurotransmitter dominance they are in. And then based off of that neurotransmitter dominance, I sort them into different subgroups, and those subgroups will have, you know, a 25% difference in their training, um, exercise selection, intensity selection, volume selection, just based off of their dominance that they have. And we could go into a greater scope of that. But as a base, that's, that's what I do with um, that neurotransmitter profiling.
0: Excellent. And if if somebody was interested in learning more about that, what are some resources they could look into?
1: Yeah. So, um, Thibodeau is somebody who has kind of pioneered this kind of movement within, um, strength conditioning neurotransmitter research. Um, and he has a ton of different podcasts, a ton of different articles and his website is filled with a ton of his neurotransmitter research. Um, and then Charles Poliquin was also a huge advocate of this type of training as well. So everybody in strength conditioning knows that name. So a big, big guy that understood the idea of everybody being different and everybody responding different to training. Um, and he has a lot of different research and, and um, I guess articles that he wrote about his training with neurotransmitters.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, this is two great resources. Now we did talk about meat and potatoes and I want to get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation. For those of you uh, who aren't familiar with Johnny's work, he is somewhat of a sports science wizard. Uh, I think I go into a tailspin every time I look at any Excel sheet that he produces. Uh, but I mean, the way he uses it and the success I've seen him have with his teams is, is pretty remarkable. So could you please speak a little bit to how you use uh Sorry. All right. Hold on one second. Could you please speak a little bit to how you use uh, sports science within your role? And then what are the most important things you look for for using it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with sports science, it's a really big buzzword right now. Just talking about everything, data science, data collection, data visualization, all of these things, everybody's really trying to hop on this train a lot of universities are hiring directors of sports science right now and i think the big thing to really understand within sports science is what are we trying to do with the information that we're collecting with all of the sports science technologies that we have and for me it comes down to just managing data outputs to create valid decisions um, in a timely manner to produce a p- positive training environment and performance outcomes. And so that's, that's the meat and potatoes of that. We need to be able to understand we're trying to make decisions for our athletes in a positive, timely manner that is going to influence training to the best possible outcome. And for me, there's three things that um, I look at, um, or three pieces of data and technology that I really look at. So there's athlete profiling, there's athlete monitoring, and then there's athlete intervention. And we've had a, a couple of conversations on this. Um, for the most part, people do a lot of athlete profiling and a lot of athlete monitoring. We we end up losing out a little bit on that athlete intervention, um, just because it it takes so much time to do the profiling and the monitoring that we kind of lose time on the intervention. And we are often stuck with, oh, I'm not exactly sure what the right intervention is. So those are kind of the three pieces of it. Um, And we can, we can talk about each one of those um, a little bit broader or a little bit more in depth if you'd like as well.
0: I would certainly like to get a little bit more in-depth on those, specifically the intervention piece, because that's something that I certainly struggle with. I can monitor. I can right. do the things that you mentioned previously. But I, I do feel like with the interventions, that's not something that's more of my strong suit.
1: Right. Yeah. So profiling itself, this just a comprehensive view of the athlete. So we've talked about it a little bit. So the physical, the psychological – um, pieces of the athlete, but it's also going to be the technical pieces of the athlete. So their skill, and then it's also going to be the tactical elements of their sport. Um, so things that I'll, I'll do is I'll look at like workload profiles. Um, we'll look at basic performance testing and training age, but then we'll also look at their role on the field or the court itself. Um, and what the coaches are asking of our players and what they can or can't do or have and haven't been doing. Um, And then that moderating piece is just kind of the guidance of a short and long-term athlete development. So we're trying to describe, we're trying to measure and define key performance indicators for our athletes. Um, And then we're trying to find load responses, whether that's internal or external. We're looking at kind of like strength measures, um, velocity measures on, you know, maybe it's uh, a in the weight room on a bar, velocity tracking stuff, maybe it's subjective monitoring. So questionnaires, wellness, things of that nature. And then maybe it's biomarking or brain monitoring as well. And so you have all of this stuff like, Oh man, like, what can I pull from it? What can I pull from it? At the end of the day, it's really, really important to be able to identify exactly what you're testing. So for us, it's like, we, we start to have questions with, um, our staffs and with um, the support groups that we're surrounded by and and we're just trying to paint a picture for everybody to exactly know what we're monitoring that's going to be the first step for us in, in being able to make an intervention because if we're choosing wrong tests for what we think then that is going to be the outcome Then we're not going to do the athlete any good we have to choose the right test to be able to identify the weakness to be able to make an intervention so basically what like i'll look at is like if we're looking at performance profiling for uh, an athlete like we can think of jump height we can think of peak power uh mean propulsive force and propulsive impulse as well Um, so we're really just trying to find output metrics um, that correspond with physical capacities um, that benefit sport performance in an essence. And then we're also being able to identify risks um, from these um, kind of, I guess, uh, measures. Um, and then, so that would be a performance profile. And so those may be, you know, the four things that I'm looking for a performance profile. And then another big thing is that fatigue, neuromuscular fatigue or fatigue in general. So what can we look at to be able to identify these things? Okay, maybe it's a reactive strength index. Maybe it's uh, the time to take off on a counter movement jump. Maybe it's the propulsive phase on a counter movement jump or time to peak power. Those would be key identifiers in neuromuscular fatigue. So being able to, oh, okay, take a look at if we're all we're doing is jump testing, okay, I could look at a couple of these things, time to take off repulsive phase, peak power. Okay, I can see based off a of baseline, are they a standard deviation below or above? And can I make a decision based off of that? If, I, if I'm if i looking at neuromuscular fatigue, but I'm looking at peak power, you can develop peak power in multiple areas. It could be, you, you could be really feeling really awesome. It takes a lot less time to produce that peak power or you could be feeling really shitty. So you take more time to develop that power, that power output is still going to be the same. So you got to identify you know, what we're what we're looking at. And then that last one, you know, return to play. That's really big and it's starting to get even bigger now. But this is where I think a lot of the intervention um, kind of comes into play. Um, what can we look at to kind of assess post-injury and progress of uh, reintroduction to sport and a lot of this stuff goes into like deceleration landing inner limb uh, asymmetry and all of those types of things Um, so we could look at peak propulsive force peak landing force landing impulses and then just asymmetries in general and so once we kind of have that idea of okay this is what this is testing this is what i'm looking for then we can start to make the intervention to what we are seeing with our athletes.
0: Excellent. I mean, it's it's very interesting to hear your whole thought process behind things. Yeah. Uh, Because I do think you use sports science so successfully with your team. So let me ask you this. Working in soccer, I feel like soccer is, to me, just from an outside basis, probably the sport that uses sports science the most. What do you think other sports could take from uh, the same philosophy that soccer takes when approaching sports science? Oh,
1: yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think, I think that the the biggest thing that you can take away from is being. Well, I'm actually going to flip this. So we often think that soccer does a really good job with sports science initiatives and and taking data and implementing it into the right way you can oftentimes go into really big rabbit holes with this so instead of soccer has a has a image of using a lot of different things i would say that it's not great in using all of these things because there's so much information that you can possibly use it's more appropriate to rather reduce the amount of noise and find tests that you're going to use that you can find meaning in and that you can connect with athletes with, and you can connect with coaches with, because at the end of the day, sports science doesn't mean anything. If you can't communicate it and you can't interpret what's going on to your sport coaches and the athletes. So that's the number one thing I would say. Uh, I think within soccer, they do, the coaches do a good job in understanding that there's a role that soccer plays. Um, And so for me, it's just a getting your coach to understand what value sports science initiatives have. And that's just a education. That's just a conversation with your sport coach. And something that I learned with Brian at Tennessee, the soccer coach, was he wanted to have know why we were doing everything. So it made me be buttoned up in everything that we were doing. So it forced me to be able to communicate and educate him on what we were doing and why we were doing it and the things that we would see from it. And so having those conversations with coaching staff is cru- crucial to being able to create buy-in and, and create uh, sports science initiatives that actually work. Because if you don't have a relationship with your sport coach, you don't have the ability to educate them They're not going to buy into the product that you are placing in front of them and it it can be really hard because there's that's there's so much misinterpretation of what exactly everything is doing so it's taking the time out of your day to really think about what am I trying to test, how can I test this, and then where am I going to see the performance benefits from it. and. That goes back to your needs analysis and, and what you're doing, basically your first day on the job. So you're going to you're sitting there. Oh, where do I start? What what do I need to start looking at? Well, you know, having a conversation with your, your coaching staff about what they want to do. See taking analysis of what the teams have done in previous years. What have they done? Well, what have they not been so successful in? Uh, what is the analysis of the sport? What is the biomechanical profile of the sport? What do they really need to be successful? Um, what is the the injury rates? What do those look like? And so then you're just starting to break it down to find actionable uh, pieces of information that you can actually utilize the data. So that's that's where I think it's it's mis- misinterpreted a lot.
0: It's somewhat of a paralysis by analysis situation, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And trust me, if I get deep into catapult, that happens to me immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand yeah. where you're coming from on that. Yeah. Uh, but you spoke about communication with the coach, which is I obviously think such a massive piece, especially on something where you're supposed to be the expert and you're supposed to convey what this data says. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's always valuable to talk about successes, but it's always also really valuable to talk about mistakes. So, yeah. what are some successes you've had with that communication with your coach, and then what are some mistakes you've made that have uh, made you kind of improve your communication skills with him?
1: yeah so a a lot of times so it's just being able to kind of identify what your sport coach wants what your athletes want and what the overall umbrella is i think some of the successes that i've had has been able to identify you know certain peaks of workload that identify risks for players and athletes that um, i would convey convey to um, a coach and you know, I'd have enough education with him, enough communication with what we are looking at, why this may be a risk, and then identifying other areas of risk that kind of encompass why we might be having this conversation. So it's really easy to again, like, okay, we have we have this this piece of information, and maybe maybe we're we're looking at five different things. You know, maybe we're looking at total distance. Uh, Maybe we're looking at high-speed running. Maybe we're looking at sprint distance. And then from a a wellness perspective, maybe we're just looking at player wellness. And then from an internal load perspective, maybe we're looking at HRV. And say one of these things is a red flag. One thing isn't enough to give me, you know, or throw caution to the wind and go, oh, gosh, coach, like this person's like really struggling. Like, yes, it's still an area of conversation, but it's, again – that communication between the coaching staff okay identifying okay we we have an, a red flag here i just want you to be aware of this um this could this could you know come back down the road if some of these other things start to get too high and so just having an, a conscious flow of, of that information and then too, it's like the, the the bad things about it i mean i've i've looked at things and i've said no they're good to go like oh um, they can do everything. we're fine. and then boom, we get an injury. And that's that's where not having the trust of your coach and not um, you know, ha- spending the time and, and communicating with them well, will really come to bite you in the butt. So for me, I think it was probably, you know, every day going into Brian's office, having a conversation, talking about everything before I recommended one time that we should pull a player from practice because it's like, Oh my God. Like if, if I was to say something like, Oh yes, we should pull this player. We shouldn't, shouldn't pull this player. And maybe I get it right the first time. Boom. He has all this love and faith in me. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. this is fantastic. Great job. Like, okay. And he starts to piece some of this information together himself. And then he comes to you and he's like, Oh, like I saw this on your report. Uh, Are you sure we don't need to like pull this person out? Like, it's like, Oh no, like that person's fine. Or yeah, we should pull them out. Like being able to have the ability to have the mutual trust and respect of one another to listen to each other. Um, that becomes really, really important. And if you don't have that, man, you could get on the coach's bad side in an instant. And I think again, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things is, is sitting there and saying, you know, this data and this technology is just one piece to the puzzle. Like there's, again, we've talked about, there's so many different pieces of the athlete. There's so many different pieces, pieces of the culture that you're a part of on the teams that you're a part of. There's so many different pieces of the sport. Technology is really just one piece of it. And it helps identify more pieces of the puzzle to be able to identify risk and identify performance improvement. Um, And if we don't have those conversations and we're not sitting, you know, having, good relationships with people. It just, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and that, that specific relationship you talk to is, is so important And that just, I think regular communication is massive as well. Any, anytime I've spoken with other strength coaches and I feel like they've been struggling with their head coach and trying to convey their information, I almost always notice that the frequency of their communication is extremely low. And when they do communicate, it's typically only about the sport. You know, there is an aspect of developing relationship with your coach as well. Um, But it's funny that you speak of, you know, Brian being able to interpret certain things on the report and have those conversations with you. Because, you know, one of the things I joke about in my recruiting speech is that our men's head coach, you know, is so good at identifying when we need to back off and when we need to, uh, you know, maybe – change our load for practice that day because of how the guys feel. And, you know, I, I went to school for six years for this and and he's just been coaching and he's figured it out himself. So, you know, I don't think people give enough credit to the head coaches as well about how much they can also interpret the things right. that we're seeing.
1: And I, I would say too, so like some people get really lucky like that. And some people don't. And so I would say here, I the relationship that I have with my coach is not as great as it was when I was at Tennessee. Nothing right, wrong, or indifferent. Just the relationship is completely different. And so the way that I go about things is completely different. So the head coach that I currently work for, he has a harder time managing, you know, what is too much, what is too little. We have a front office and and ownership that is looking at us for – development of players. So it's it's really important to have people on the field alive. It's really important to, you know, press the envelope on exactly what we're trying to do and accomplish. And so it changes your your perspective on and your ideas as a sports science practitioner to mirror what the club and the coach or the the university and the coach is is trying to get out there. And your relationship has to change. So, with Brian, it was really easy for me to say, Yeah, this is what we're doing. I don't think you should do this. And he would be like, Okay, yeah, that's great. We won't do this. We'll change this up. And this is how it'll work. Here it's, Hey, I, I don't think we should do this. Oh, well, that's too bad. We're going to do it anyways. And it's like, Okay, that's fine. How can I manipulate myself as a practitioner, whether it's sport performance, whether, um, for me is soft tissue for me sports science how can i manipulate myself in another way to help make my athlete as successful as possible because at the end of the day i'm just one one person and the ideas and the foundations of where you're at is going to dictate your environment and what you do. So for me now, okay, we're not changing this. Okay. Some of the guys that may have risk, what can I do to help put them in a better situation? Okay. I know I can do some soft tissue manipulation with them. I know that I can um, kind of ha- put their pain tolerance a little bit m- bit lower and I can make them move a little bit more functionally for the day. So when they get out on the field, they can handle the loads. Um, I can put them in positions in the weight room under enough stress to help, mitigate the risk for injury at some point uh within you know the season, within a a training session, things of that nature. So how can I um adapt myself to be able to be a tool and, and be utilized um on a different front?
0: That's such a massive point, and I really appreciate your perspective on that because I can understand frustrations of other coaches I've spoken with or, you know, when the relationship with their coach or their athletes isn't exactly where they want it to be. It typically is, like we talked about, lack of communication. But then also, you know, the strength coach not being willing to – you know, put their own beliefs aside for a moment and instead get down to what it truly matters about, which is what can I do to best assist the athlete in this situation?
1: Absolutely. And that's, again, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. See, athlete is the number one priority, their their health, their safety, and their success is my number one priority while being just an extension of the people that I'm working for, the head coach that I'm working for. I'm trying to align their vision with what I'm doing, but I have the first and, and utmost respect for keeping my athletes' health, keeping them safe, and allowing them to perform at their best.
0: And that's, that's really, like you said, that's what it's all about. So that's massive. Well, we're getting close to the end of the time here, uh, but I did want to ask, is there anything that you feel like was left unsaid in this podcast, anything that you wanted to mention uh, while you still have the floor?
1: Ooh, uh, I would say – I didn't go too much into the integration part of sports science, and it it's it's sad because it is such a dilemma on your current circumstances and your situations. But the takeaway point from that is identify what you want to uh, target in your data collection, understand what you are targeting with that specific test, and then going on one side or the other of that test. Are they performing well? Or are they performing poorly in that test? So for example, just say RSI reactive strength index. So I can tell a lot about an athlete based off of their RSI because you get uh, takeoff speeds, you get the reactive strength piece of it. And so I can tell, okay, do they have a high RSI or a low RSI? And typically that's gonna show me, are they elastic or are they muscular? And then I can be, begin to start manipulating training based off of, you know, a collection of tests that I have from that individual. So just being able to identify, okay, this is what I'm testing. This is why I'm testing it. And what can I do on either side of the coin to help facilitate performance for my athlete?
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely a massive piece of it, and I'm glad you spoke to that. So, I mean, I I know all tests are situation-dependent, right, and sport-dependent, but what are the few tests that you would have that you would always use with any team that you would work with?
1: Yeah, so I'm always doing counter-movement jumps, uh, hand-on-hip, just to reduce the noise within the test itself. Um, I'll always do a a standing RSI, six-test jump, um, hands-on-hips as well, And then I'm always going to be doing an isometric belt squat, too, whether that's one to two weeks. Um, Doesn't have to be every week. Typically, when we get really busy in season, I I get to do it maybe once a month. But that's just kind of showing me a relative strength of our athletes, where they're at. Um, And if we need to add some hypertrophy work, whether we need to add some more strength work, um, or power, because that's going to, the impulse is going to be there. The total power output is going to be there. And then, um, the, the peak, uh, impulse is also there. So you're able to just identify that from, uh, that ISO pool as well. And then we talked a little bit about, um, the performance testing, what we're looking at a little bit early on.
0: Spoken like a true sports scientist here. You know, nah. like, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't go that I far. My one uh, test may be just broad jump. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> hey, that's a good. No,
1: that's 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 a good one too. Yeah, you just have to know why you're testing it.
0: Exactly. I just exactly. don't use that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much, Johnny. We really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks, man. Talk to you later.
0: All right. See you.